happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is episode number 165 of the EdTech Situation Room on February 12, 2020. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana Hey, that was weird. I don't know if my, my connectivity, we froze for just a moment. So I'm glad it came back right as you were handing it off. Uh, but I am Wes Fryer coming to you from Oklahoma City tonight, where I am the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School. And I am the lone watcher of the dog who, uh, the puppy who is rapidly, rapidly growing. And, uh, I am also, um, Looking forward to um, a midwinter break, which we are fortunate to have. So Friday and Monday are vacation days for us at school. Uh, and then we also may have uh, some guests coming up uh, because I think Dr. Neifer is going to be gallivanting around the planet, as it were, to share his ed tech wisdom. And we've also said if you want to gather at his feet for seven, yes, seven <laughs> sessions, you know, that's pretty much the number one reason Thousands are going to NCCE this year. It's pretty much the headline. So, <laughs> so my son in Denver said, or the Golden said, they've been getting snow basically every day the last two weeks. Is that yeah. is that the weather in Missoula as well? It's pretty close. Um, it's melting a lot during the day, and actually, I have my I have two nieces that live in Salem, and um, their birthdays are in February. I'm sorry, in March, and so we bring them in in February during Presidents' Day weekend to come skiing here. So we're hoping for a little more snow that sticks, so that my uh, delightful nieces can go uh, uh, skiing and snowboarding um, around the Missoula area. But it's it's definitely winter-ish here, and you know, frankly, you know, more snow would be better. Not necessarily because I'm a winter guy, but because the more snow there is in February, the less fires there are in August. So that's the potential yeah, for us here. Definitely. In well, what is this thing tonight, Jason? We have a live viewer that's joining us. Welcome. What can they expect to hear? Lots more weather and uh, meteorological analysis. I hope. Sadly, the weather part of the, the show is over, but the EdX Situation Room is a once-a-week podcast where Wes and I talk about education uh, uh, technology through the lens of headlines that are happening across the techosphere. And each week, there is usually a lot of interesting things going on that probably have a, an interesting educational twist to them. We try to dig through those issues to find out more. So we have a lot of interesting links this week, uh, some interesting stuff going on in Google World, some Chrome OS updates, a lot of interesting security and privacy articles as usual, some interesting information about Windows, media literacy items, and also various Apple news. So Wes, where would you like to start us this evening? Well, let's begin at the top, and we'll remind folks they can go to edtechsr.com slash links if you'd like to take a look at these. Um, I did a number of, uh, or read a number of articles and watched several videos related to uh, YouTube and Made for Kids and things like that, um, and then ended up stumbling upon this article, uh, Manage and Restore Your Device Backups in Google Drive. So this is, um, I guess, something new inside Google that you can... Um, you know, view all of your Google Drive backups in one place. So uh, if you go to, to drive.google.com, um, in the bottom left corner, you're going to see storage. And so you can click on on that and you'll uh, be able to go to backups. And so 
The key thing about going to your backups is that they actually expire. And so, um, Right now, when you, when I just go to my Google Drive, there's a, there's a pop-up window notifying me, hey, backups have moved. You can manage and view them, uh, under storage. And so when you go to storage, uh, it lists the amount of space that those things take. And then the article says, your backup will remain as long as you use your device. If you don't use your device for two weeks, you may see an expiration date below your backup. And so, um, I, I don't know. It might be Google's way of, making sure that you're not leaving backups you don't need in drive to recover space. Uh, did you know about this and you have any theory on, on why Google's doing this? Cause it, it appears for me like everything that's like a zip file. And then there's also like a lot of movies that are in here. Um, basically anything that's not a regular document. So I've got MP4s, movies, uh, weird extensions, essentially keynotes. They're all in that storage area. Well, the thing that's interesting to me here that I don't know the answer to, although I, I just looking at my own Google Drive, I think I may know this, is that for a while, and Google Drive's been evolving quite dramatically over the last two or three years, um, the product is very competitive with other uh, other services that are kind of dedicated to cloud storage like Dropbox or Box.net. But for a while, there was just Google Drive, the application, and now there's Google Drive the Google Drive application is gone. It's been replaced by two distinctly different products. The first one is called Backup and Sync, which is like Google Drive, um, and you download it like you used to be able to do Google Drive as an application on your Mac or PC. And in addition to uh, being a sync folder, right, like all a Dropbox or OneDrive, if, if you use that on your your computer, um, it would you know, allow you to, to keep cloud folders, right? So they sync to different devices. You can access them on your phone, et cetera. Um, and then they also had a backup component that allowed you to back up your um, uh, your computer, or it would back up your desktop, your your documents folder. And I just noticed that that is now gone on my computer, or I'm sorry, my Google Drive. And I didn't really use it because that's I I, I keep things. If I want to keep it, I keep it in a cloud storage folder, anyways. But I think it also refers to Android uh, backups as well. So if you, for example, I've got a um, a Google-based tablet. I also have a Google-based phone. That and, and I know backups are being kept for that because I've been able to restore from them in the past. But it is very new to me this notion um, that it will now uh, 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 delete those over time. I think that's interesting. It's probably a good idea to help people manage their cloud storage. I know I have helped out folks that use only free. Google Drive storage, which isn't all that much. It's only 15 gigs, I think, for a standard free Google account. I p- purchase more space, but I know some people have been frustrated occasionally because they get clogged up with backups, and then suddenly there is a um, you know a ton of of backups that you that are relatively no value, and then your storage gets clogged up. So it's probably good from that standpoint, but. It just continues to, to do the narrative. I do think that Google is working very hard to keep evolving their drive storage product to make it as functional and as a kind of smart as possible. Okay, very good. Would you like to pick up a article there from our uh, Google collection? Sure. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, well, uh, we both, I think, had, had picked articles like this. Um, uh, Essential, which is the... Um, um, uh, Android co-founder. Yeah, uh, Andrew Rubin, the, the co-founder of Android, created uh, Essential after leaving Google. And we talked about this in the past, but he left under some pretty uh, 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 
not great conditions. Uh, he'd been accused of several things, uh, and, and apparently got a big, uh, severance package and leaving, and that caused some issues at Google. But Essential was a company that was essentially going to, and that's, was an unintended pun, was essentially going to, to create a premium and, uh, Android phone for a relatively modest price. And, the uh, Essential PH1, which was the first phone they had released, was a really outstanding Android phone. And it tried to pick up from where Google's phones left off. One of the biggest problems with Google's Android system is that they just don't get updates very fast. And so Google will push out Android updates. They then go to manufacturers and a lot of manufacturers sit on those, those, those updates. And the PH1 phone, which was two years old at this point, uh, received not only the update to the latest version of the Android operating system. It started off on version 8, and then it received 9 within a week of its release, and then it received Android 10 the same day that they released Android 10, which was an incredible thing for Android users because we don't get the same kind of update structure on Android as folks that use iPhones get iOS updates. And... This is, uh, I know the, the essential PH1 phone, which I almost purchased. I had it literally sitting in an Amazon cart within six months of its release. Um, it was an outstanding phone, but I feel like this is, uh, systematic of a lot of problems with tech companies or startups. They just apparently didn't have enough oomph to stick in it for the long haul. I probably would have been a uh, second-generation essential phone purchaser based on their Android updates, but until I knew they were going to be around for a while, there was no reason for me to jump into that architecture. So, sad day for Android, um, I think, because there was finally a company that was viably releasing Android updates on a regular schedule. On the good news for thinking about Android, you know, it has been demonstrated by some uh, co- a co-host of this show that if you want to go just Android for nine months and then jump back right into the iPhone fold, you know, it all it all works well. Um, a friend of mine at work actually is a big Essential fan as well, and I'm sure he's going to be very disappointed to hear that that's not happening. And I, you know, I competition as we've talked about on the show in multiple contexts is very valuable for consumers. The fact that the Major carriers, you know, have tended to, to put bloatware and to basically not serve the interest of consumers who would want to just control their device and have the apps that they want, not the ones that other people are going to push. I, I, I'm sad to see that. <clears throat> but I think this is probably, you know, a sign of network effects and other things. I yep. mean, it's hard to compete in these markets. And, you know, if the co-founder of, of Android has trouble, you know, getting another company to go, I mean, it's it's a pretty tough market out there. So sorry to see that happening. Um, but, it, you know, I just I, I think it, it shows probably the nature of of the market and how difficult it is and how difficult it's going to be for somebody to try. To, I mean, if somebody would try to come in and develop a competitive operating system, um, pretty challenging. We saw, uh, you know, Amazon, I think, try that, right? Weren't they doing it? It was just a fork of Android that they had for it was a while a with fork the Fire of Android. Yeah, they, it was a fork of Android and still exists on tablets, but they had the Fire Phone, which was kind of a weird a mix between, um, and, well, Android's background, and then they were going to try to survive on 
on uh, their own app store. And because that app store is a fifth of the size of the Google Play store, it never really took off. But, um, you know, it's, I think it's still possible. And we've also talked about in the past that Huawei in China, who has been impacted by the U.S.-Chinese trade war, uh, they have also uh, created their own operating system as well. And, and if Android was ever never available to or, or stop being available to Huawei, they could fork to that. But they also have, you know, literally a billion potential customers in China that could pick that up. They could pick up probably millions, if not tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of customers to support that ecosystem. One other note that's also important, if you go to Russia, if you go to China, there, Android is, is very much alive there, but the Play Store isn't a big deal in either of those two countries. That they have their own, uh, uh, Android-based Play Stores that exist on their, their Android phones, because Android's an open source operating system, they just don't have any Google stuff on them. So, uh, for example, in Russia, uh, I think it's Yandex is how you pronounce their, their, their version of Google is Yandex. You can get Yandex Mail and Yandex Search, and they have phones they sell that have a Yandex app store on them that is really focused on Russia. And we've talked about the notion of multiple internets or maybe end up having kind of silo internets around the world. Um, Android uh, kind of unintentionally assists that because it provides a sustainable operating system for a phone that can have an other uh, other Play Store or other app store stacked on top of it. Hey, George is saying in the chat she's having a little difficulty getting to the, the links. I'm not sure what, what would be going on. Um, are you able to, to get to links from our show notes tonight? I, I am, but I will say that uh, Google Drive is slow for me tonight, so perhaps there is a, um, a, Google a, a issue in the, the uh, in Trans- the a translation. Uh, a couple more Google-related but YouTube-specific articles and videos. Uh, last week, Jason had a great shout-out to another podcast, which was the Ed the EdTech Takeout um, which is uh, some wonderful educators from Iowa, including Jonathan Wiley. And they had talked about, uh, I think the title of their show was YouTube is Changing. And so I listened to that uh, actually earlier this week, and that inspired me to do some other reading. And so uh, we put in the show notes, and I'll include in the show notes that we'll publish on the on the edtechsr.com website, a YouTube help article called How Brand Accounts Work with YouTube. I didn't read this, but in the pro- in the course of watching these videos and reading, one of the questions we've talked about on the show is like, why why are brand accounts now not of, you know possible with uh, G Suite for Education domains? Um, you can have that extended, and if you're in, on an extension, you've got until July. <clears throat> I think it comes down to accountability for accounts and COPA or COPA, however you want to pronounce it. Um, there's a YouTube help link I put in there called Frequently Asked Questions about Made for Kids. Um, and then a, a couple videos, um, I guess I only linked one, but it's called, this, this is the YouTube Creators Update from February 7th, New Copyright Features, Updates to Har- Our Harassment Policy, and more. Um, yesterday evening, I actually went through the 891 videos I have on my YouTube channel and uh, noticed that some of them had automatically been marked made for kids, uh, especially the ones that had uh, some of our children in them who, you know, when they were much younger. Um, for those of you not aware, you know, YouTube got this big fine from uh, the FCC, I think, or FTC or FCC, the U.S. government anyway, and um, it's having to do some things to comply. And so uh, one of these things is that you have to 
uh, indicate if the design desired audience for your video is going to be kids under 13, it has to be labeled that way. And so when you upload to YouTube now, it prompts you, you have to state that, but you're also supposed to, and I got this confirmed, go through your old videos and indicate which ones have been made for kids. So I, uh, you know, did all the ones that I've created for students that are designed for lessons and the ones that like, there's some, you know, even older videos that, that our kids made about club penguin. There's this game called Travians. I think that one was, was already uh, marked automatically. Um, but also if you have child actors, so if you, if you have young children in there, all of those need to be tagged that way. The thing from the, EdTech takeout that seemed to be, you know, most maybe troubling is that in addition to having comments turned off and the monetization is different, which I can't monetize. Actually, at one time I could, but you have to have a certain number of hours in last year to monetize in addition to having over a thousand subscribers, which I do have that. Um, but anyway, the thing that troubled me was you can't, these videos can't be evidently added to playlists, but it, this is something I'm still not clear about. I think that might be if you make your entire channel YouTube uh, that it's saying that it's made for kids. Um, so one of the uh, hosts there on the EdTech takeout was saying they had been able to still add to playlists. So there's still some questions around here, but um, I would just say in general, I think it's fantastic as an educator for us to have our own YouTube channels, for us to be playing in the sandbox, the digital sandbox as it was, you know, in terms of creating media. I think video is still the pencil of the 21st century. Um, and with all of these things changing, uh, it's, it's good to, you know, be able to have a, a real direct experience on, you know, what does this mean? And, and what is, you know, YouTube is such an important platform. I think it is a hugely important platform for us as educators, for schools. Um, but it is important to think about, uh, and of course, adhere to the law and to know, you know, how these things are going to affect, um, you know, students, not only when we're showing them something in class or assigning something, but also as they as they go home. And one of the things that came through really strong, I think it was in that creator's update, but maybe it was also the articles that I read, um, is that they say YouTube was never designed for kids under 13 years old. And so that is a very clear thing that YouTube is saying in these helpful support articles, in these videos for creators, um, and that's something for us to think about in school, because does that mean, you know, for my younger kids, we should be sharing things more on Google Drive if we're a Google school uh, and then embedding those because we can certainly do that. You can still make those, you know, public and share those. Um, you know, how do we think about YouTube? Uh, it is great, I think, that, you know, commenting on some of those issues because we've used like quiet YouTube and safe YouTube and some of these other tools that will just strip out all of the distractions and let you just show the video. And then even with a share link, um, my wife, you know, does, does a lot of those as well. You run into the issue though, of that, you know, company that you're basically, they're, they're, they're showing the YouTube video kind of through their own website, blocking everything else. And if they go away, do you have the original video? There's these different kinds of issues. So that was a lot. Any, any thoughts, Jason? Do you do you have any YouTube accounts you need to uh, go through and make sure they are marked? Uh, have you have been recording a lot of interviews with young Missoulians? 
lately that you need to... Uh, no, I have not. And in fact, I just went to my YouTube account because I was going to check because I hadn't checked that for myself. And I probably have, I mean, I have like 10 random videos on my YouTube account. I'm not a, 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 this, well, this, this podcast is the closest I get to being a YouTube broadcaster because I, I don't... This qualifies you. I think, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. I am a YouTube broadcaster via this podcast, but in my personal account, I'm not. Um, and you know, I have some random videos there and I had a couple of failed Google, um, uh, teacher academy, uh, videos. And then I did see a couple of screencasts from like 2008 that, by the way, are just really not very <laughs> well done, but they were intended for students. But I just noticed that it, it, it set my, my, uh, I had never done this, but it set my setting to my, that I do not upload videos for kids. Um, it's interesting though, because I, and as a lot of people commented on this, you know, the line is a little hazy because to be frank, a lot of kids, or I'm sorry, a lot of videos that would be aimed at an older set of teenagers, for example, which are not 13. And well, it's technically 13. It, it is very technically, uh, uh, 13 as a, as a teenager, but for the high school set would be 14, 15, 16, 17 year olds that it's be hard to draw that line. Right between those two pieces. Well, and they make clear in this that you know if kids under thirteen see it, that's not a reason to have to say made for kids. It really comes down to audience, and um, you know there are egregious cases of of people you know trying to game the system, and there's there's a lot of stuff that I'm I think is probably going to be shut down. Certainly not monetizable yeah. uh, in the way it has been in the past, and so you know that. Overall, like they're not taking aim at teachers, but these do have impacts for us. Um, I don't think there's any need to panic about, you know, getting a $40,000 fine or whatever the maximum, you know, fine for this is. I, I just think we all need to have a good faith effort at trying to mark these things, realizing there are algorithms and human reviewers that are also going in to try to mark things that, that do appear to be, uh, targeted as far as an audience that's intended as less than 13. Um, and so anyway, these, these are important issues. And, and like I said, I've been wondering, gosh, why take away the branded accounts for schools? Cause for us at our school, I mean, we have a number of channels that we've set up kind of like this, right? The EdTech situation room is a branded channel. And that means that either, you know, Jason and I are both managers of it. We can log in, we can make a change, a change to the account. I think that it has to do more with accountability for, for Google for education. And then just really, you know, seeing the branded account as something that is, um, you know, uh, something that's going to be done outside the auspices of, you know, education schools and what we're doing for the classroom. But for instance, for our athletics, for our, for our communications department, you know, we've had some shared branded channels and, um, you know, what we're having to do is uh, move that content and in fact, this is a good reminder. And this is why, whether it's internet safety and screen time or all these, all these things we need to be reminded of. We've heard them before, but it's good to be reminded. Um, I need a follow up with some of our team to make sure that those plans are underway because as a school G suite account, you know, you basically now just get one YouTube channel for each email address. And so what we're understanding we need to do if we don't want and which you wouldn't write for your communications department for that channel to be associated with an employee's email account because that employee is not going to be there forever. Right. You know, set up an email account in G Suite that is communications at your domain, and then right. that becomes the YouTube channel. And similarly for athletics or or whatever. So, you know, in that way, you 
you do kind of, you can share the password and, and the access to that. Um, I do think it's important to be wary of, of those things and still two-step verification. It's very, very important to have that enabled. Well, and echoing that piece of advice, you know, I've, I've been to some uh, IT conferences and talked with other Google admins that recommended that, that all of the really powerful things you can do as an administrator in your Google domain should be limited to a, not a, not people, but accounts that are basically titles. So in the case of, of my job at Montana Digital Academy, assistant director at montanadigitalacademy.org, right? And then, and, and we set this up and then that's under a very secure password. It's not part of your daily use. Um, you have to log into it separately to get access to all the admin, admin panels. I could see, see doing the same thing in regards to like a, a, a communications account, right? Communications director at your domain.com. And that, that would offer an opportunity for that to be a position as opposed to a person. And then, um, you know, when you have a new communications director, uh, then that just gets handed on to that person as, as part of that process. And I think that, that, that strategically people are doing that anyways in regards to managing Google domains. That just adds another element to it. And if you've got a lot of videos, it'll take a while, but you'll have to download all those and then re-upload them. <laughs> of course, that breaks the links. So any embeds or, you know, hyperlinks that you've got, any of those videos. So it is a disruption. Um, but, you know, the alternative is if it's a branded account, it's going to disappear, I think, after July 11th. I think mid-July was the extension date. Peggy George was asking in the chat, um, like for Classroom 2.0 Live, which is a wonderful professional development uh, channel and uh, live webinar series that is now but discontinued, um, you know, they're safe for kids. Do they need to mark them as made for kids? No, you do not, unless your content has child actors and it's or and or it's specifically targeted at kids under 13. Uh, you don't need to, it, you know, if if kids uh, otherwise, you know, see this and it's safe or whatever, that's that's fine. But it's really to <laughs> I'm not I don't know how much of this, is, but, you know, Peppa Pig. I mean, there's these different things that people search for because that once it's it, once it's designated made for kids. Uh, this was something they brought out in the in the uh, Ed Tech takeout podcast. It's supposedly it's not available in Google search like people can't just search for you. If you have a, or for that video, if it's marked made for kids, which is kind of bizarre. So, I mean, people can get to it from a direct link and embed or whatever, but it's not going to evidently, you know, just show up in an algorithm. And this has to do with data tracking. So the ways in which Google is tracking users and then using the recommendation engine, I I think for the uh, FCC's, you know, fine and their compliance with COPA, uh, they are having to demonstrate that they are taking all the videos that have a designated audience of kids under 13 and they are putting them basically in another digital basket. And that's what this uh, restriction profile does. Okay, Wes, I'd like to point out one one other quick Google article and then we can move on to other stuff. And then if we get time, I've got some interesting Chrome OS updates. But uh, Chrome Unbox reported, I believe it was today, that they have spotted an interesting reference in the Chromium commit list, which is the development of the Chrome browser starts as the Chromium browser. Chromium, of course, backs not only Google Chrome, but alternatives like the Brave browser, um, uh, uh, the Edge, new Edge browser from Microsoft, also Chromium-based. But I had pointed this out uh, that when it, this was first released on the Pixel phones, but there is a great new feature on newer Google phones. That's not Android phones, but Google phones that has live transcription. And 
I think I've demonstrated this here in the past, but this is live transcription in action uh, for those that are watching this via video, and it's just listening to me talk, and Wes, you talk for a moment. I just am amazed to see Android and the power of Google unleashed on the EdTech Situation Room. There you go, and it does a pretty good job. It's fairly accurate, and it does a decent job of putting things into sentences and turning into paragraphs. Well, that feature is, is pretty incredible and pretty powerful, but it apparently is going to be something that will eventually appear on the general Chrome browser, which I think is an extraordinary accessibility feature uh, for those that are uh, in need of, of having an automated transcription. Um, obviously, um, there are uh, laws in, in place to make sure that all content uh, in, in various channels, including most educational institutions, is already accessible and has things like transcripts available. But for those that are hard of hearing or, or have other hearing disabilities and may, uh, for other reasons, need a, a transcript of something, live transcripting feature is awesome and will probably be available at some point in the general Chrome browser. Well, I want to do some Apple news, but let's first get a quick media literacy. And this is a little segue because the Google technology you're mentioning uh, is some technology we've certainly, you know, been in awe of and excited about with Google I.O. and, and those. Because that's does that come up, by the way, here in a little bit? When does Google I.O. happen? May? We'll have to Google it. Um, so that's the developer conference for Google. But at the last Google I.O., I think it was, we had this amazing demonstration of this like uh, phone attended and AI technology where, you know, uh, a restaurant could theoretically, well, you know, you could have people, you could have your assistant call a restaurant and like book, um, you know, an appointment, uh, make a reservation and people didn't know. And so that is exciting perhaps for us as consumers. But when you think about that being weaponized at scale for computational propaganda, Hey, there's a lot of new Scrabble words for us to, to utilize. Um, I am quoting a wonderful gentleman named Samuel Woolsey, and I put this link under media literacy. I just listened to this podcast today. The podcast episode is called Breaking the Truth, a conversation with Samuel Woolsey uh, from January 28th, 2020. It's from a podcast called Power 3.0 uh, podcast, Authoritarian Resurgence, Democratic Resilience. And Woolsey is a professor at UT Austin in their media and journalism depart or department or college. Um, he is the author of a book called The Reality Game, How the Next Wave of Technology Will Break the Truth. And if you are not talking about media literacy and how we are helping not only students, but literally older adults. How are we going to reach older adults? I think the number one demographic that is sharing misinformation, disinformation, and weaponized propaganda. And by weaponized propaganda, I mean an algorithmic, there's algorithmic computational, all these things mean using code to, you know, create videos, to create articles, to be able to artificially boost the, you know, social media uh, parent popularity of these things, try to get them into the mainstream, get people to share them, tricking people. I mean, we are living in an unprecedented age of, of weaponized propaganda, of computational um, propaganda where, you know, these, these algorithms are really being used for malicious purposes. And hey, if you didn't know, there's an election going on and you know, we ain't seen nothing yet. These tools just keep on getting more powerful. So I want to commend that that interview with Samuel Woolsey. Uh, I think that 
These topics are essential. I was in a live chat today over lunch with a number of uh, technology leaders at independent schools around the country. And I just, you know, if if responses in that in that webinar are, are representative, I, I do not think there are nearly enough conversations happening right now around media literacy and around these issues, just about like, how are you going to to validate content? You know, the the the, the skills and, and suggestions that Alan November had, you know, 10 and 20 years ago, maybe some of those still work, but like you can't look at a website and make that decision. You've got to read laterally. You're going to have to find other sources that, you know, help you perhaps Wikipedia. There's a really good project um, that uh, Mike Caulfield has encouraging schools to, you know, if, if Wikipedia pages for your local news sites don't exist, you know, you need, you and your students can help create those and, and provide ways in which people can be vetting these things. There was a great BuzzFeed News article, and I don't know that we had it in here this week, but it was basically highlighting how there are so many, you know, sites today that are purporting to be local news. In some cases, it's even a, a local newspaper that shut down and they've taken the name of it, but it is complete, you know, disinformation. So it is a very challenging environment and... I always think it's great to get podcast recommendations like that. And uh, I am fortunate to have a friend now who is feeding me a lot of those. And his name is Brian Turnbaugh and he's an educator. Uh, his Twitter, I'll put it in the show notes as we go twits. But anyway, I met him at the Institute for Digital Literacy in Providence, Rhode Island last summer. And he has continued to feed me a, a, a stream of great links that tie into these kinds of issues. So Jason, are you doing anything on media literacy or the, the uh, weaponization of, uh, of news or things touching on that for NCCE? I am. Yeah. I am uh, working with a, another uh, member of the NCCE team, Morgan Larson, who's a librarian in um, Eastern Washington. And her and I are going to work on, she's, I believe she's a former English teacher, but she's currently a librarian. And we're going to kind of approach the, the media literacy topic um, from, from a, kind of two different angles during a presentation. But one of the things that we're both really interested in is that how do we give students tools to, to better approach things? And it's funny you should mention that from a broader perspective too. Um, I had the opportunity, I sat in on Monday afternoon, um, the Missoula County Public Schools had a professional development day on Monday, and um, my partner in crime at the Digital Academy, Mike Agostinelli, and I were invited to sit in on an ed camp Monday afternoon with a number of elementary teachers from a handful of um, district elementary schools, and I did hear a few uh, teachers of younger students talking about that there, and by younger students, I mean uh, middle elementary grades that at this point, they, they just don't feel like their students are ready to openly Google things. They are uh, moving themselves to try to kind of curate resources or to borrow kind of Martin Horaji's term for the University of Montana to orchestrate resources for them unless there is a, you know, kind of a media literacy lesson wrapped into that, right? That this notion, and I, I keep remembering, I, I mentioned this a lot during presentations, but if you picked up a, a textbook in 1999, 2000, something written during that time period. They would talk about extension activities, and they would talk about, you know, go do internet research on X topic. And not only is that, I think, pedagogically not very defensible, that in, in 2020, I think it's probably the worst it's ever been in regards to, you know, if you're just flatly 
uh, uh, buying into whatever the first 50 links are. And, and let's be honest, you don't get past the first page. If you aren't a seasoned researcher, then you're probably picking up information that's not intended for, or for, for giving you, you light and instead is, is, is trying to, to, to uh, you know, push your opinion one direction or the other. And we're not teaching media literacy. We are really kind of hurting the, the main channel we have in 2020 uh, to pick up and, and, and research important topics. Yeah. These are important things that we, we need to figure out together. Well, uh, let me hit an, an Apple article or two. Uh, and then we've got, we have a lot of stuff in here. So uh, Apple is now allowing for Siri to answer your 2020 election questions. This is Apple Insider from from February 11th. And um, kind of interesting, I know you got another smart speaker. Um, we may want to segue to that. Um, but, you know, Siri is really not my go-to as far as like, wow, this is just going to be fantastic. I, I have the Google Assistant um, as a, you know, button on, on my homepage. And so especially when I need to look up something, you know, on the web, uh, I'm using the Google Assistant on my iPhone, but I thought that was interesting. And, you know, seeing what kinds of things the smart assistants can can do and it will the, the article talks about being able to, um, you know, not get basically kind of live updates as far as what's going on with primaries and things like that. So that's that's kind of interesting. Um, but there are a couple articles on it, and you you put one from Vox in. I think I put another one up under security. Uh, this was also Apple Insider from uh, February 11th. Mac malware outpaced Windows PC threats for the first time in 2019, report says. But before you, you know, panic, ditch your Mac, and rush out to buy a Windows PC, please don't do that. Um, they talk about potentially unwanted programs, which are called PUPs. And these malware statistics, which come from the program Malwarebytes, are not just like ransomware and, you know, really malicious kinds of malware, but it's also just adware and this, you know, these what they're calling these pups, potentially unwanted programs. Um, it can be adware that's, you know, difficult to be able to remove uh, things that may be tracking your behavior. Um, they may be affecting your search results. Um, they may be affecting the search engine, right? That's a whole you know, very big red flag litmus test. Uh, whenever I, you know, help a teacher with a computer and she's not, he or she does not have, you know, Google, maybe Bing, but usually it's, it's Google as a search engine. It's, you know, why did you have this change? Well, I didn't change that. Oh, really? You know, that means that some, some kind of extension or other program did. So I think it's interesting that we're seeing Apple highlighted here for having, you know, malware. And that's certainly a, a headline because usually Apple, um, as well as Chrome, I mean, Chrome is extremely secure as far as, um, uh, not having, you know, viruses and malware relative to, to Windows platforms. Um, but it's important to read the fine print there. And I think that headline may also be designed for, you know, getting people to click on it because, oh my gosh, Apple, lots of malware. Well, perhaps, but lots right. of ad more than other malwares. Well, and I just would also note that the article that I put in, in, in about a similar topic in regards to uh, the increase in, this is from Vox, the Apple's malware problem is getting worse as the headline. The reason why I thought this was interesting is that, I mean, I do think that there is an increased problem on the Apple platform, not because uh, there's anything inherently wrong with the the, the uh, Mac OS platform, it's because there are a lot of users, right? The point of, of malware is to have as big of an impact as possible. And, you know, if you had a tiny 
a percentage of of the market uh it would not be you know nearly as attractive to to develop malware towards that market but i was really interested in that particular article because it talks about strategies for mitigating the malware risk on macs and uh, of course the answer isn't antivirus software um or other anti-malware software and in fact in 2020 and in general there is um sorry about that uh my father-in-law making an appearance on the antivirus situation room tonight um, the the point wasn't to download a, a protection program. The point was you needed more more savvy about how you use your computer because you know don't click on 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 emails that have attachments that that are you're not familiar with and don't download pops. So which is a term I learned for the first time tonight. Like you should be um, more savvy than that. You have to be in order to um, to prevent this. And you know we've talked about this too. Windows has changed fairly dramatically. At some point we got to get our two dogs together in the podcast, but um, what a cute puppy. Um, uh, a non-dangerous pup is what that pup is. So uh, um, the the point here is is not that, that software is going to protect you, it's that you have to be more savvy about the way you use and approach your computer. And we've talked about this in the past, it used to be that the advice was to download either commercial or free antivirus for your for your for your Windows computer. Now a lot of folks agree that the the integrated antivirus and security software in Windows is probably as good or better than most of the commercial products available. But in the end, the best way to avoid malware is to not download malware, right? So to be extremely paranoid is not the right word. Maybe it's savvy, maybe it's secure, maybe it's it's it bring a healthy amount of, of distrust to things you don't know discreetly about. But that has to be strategy number one. And regularly wipe your devices, whether it is your phone or it is your laptop. Yep. We need to have things backed up. We started off the show talking about a Google backup, you know, feature or whatever. You know, we need to be keeping complete backups of all of our devices and, you know, at a moment's notice, being able to basically wipe them out and, and reinstall them. Yep. Thankfully, the tools are better at that than ever before. It can take a while as far as how many apps you have and how much data you have, but that's an essential part of hygiene, both at, in the enterprise and individually. Um, two other quick Apple articles. So Apple released Swift Playgrounds for Mac. That's from Mac Rumors on February 11th. Uh, that's really good news. Uh, folks that have been wanting to use Swift Playgrounds have needed to have a relatively newer iPad. Um, here a few years ago, we had some folks wanting to do that, and that was before we had done many upgrades. And I think you had to have like an Air 2 at that time to run Swift Playgrounds. And so now it's on Mac OS. We've got a couple, you know, iMac labs. I'm sure it also, you know, has operating system. And in terms of compiling and, and whatever, there's probably, you know, there's always benefits to having a faster processor and a faster machine. But that is a good thing to see that coming to, to uh, Mac OS. And then I thought this was interesting. Mac Rumors on February 12th said that Apple Pay could account for 10% of global card transactions by 2025, even rivaling PayPal. Um, but of course, as the article says, this is also pending, you know, what kinds of regulation we have, especially European regulators don't like, uh, large companies to dominate markets. And so whether they're going to force Apple to open up their chip, you know, that's being used for those secure transactions, uh, that is, uh, that, you know, it'll be interesting to track that. Um, have you been tempted, Jason, to get an Apple card? I would kind of suspect maybe no. No, because I don't really have much in that ecosystem and, I'm not committed. Do you have one of those, Wes? Mm-hmm. No. Okay. So I, I, I've seen it doesn't have a number, right? I just flat. Right. I think, yeah. Yeah. 
And it also, it's my understanding is that it's not particularly rigorous technology. Um, and I, um, I'm not sure what it is. I think I am particularly hard on credit cards, for example. Like I've, I've had credit cards literally fall apart in my wallet before, not from overuse and swiping, but you know, I, I, I carry kind of a minimalist wallet with me. So they're kind of packed together. I'm convinced that I think it's a good idea technology wise. And there's a lot of great security features built into it. I just don't. I, it just doesn't seem like it's going to survive my wallet. Well, on the security note, I know you've got several Chrome OS articles. Chrome OS, great way to stay secure, right or wrong? Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely right. I mean, there is obviously malware for it. In the in the, the there are uh, apps in the Google App Store, although they're getting rid of. I'm sorry, the the Chrome App Store. They're getting rid of of Chrome apps. We've talked about that in a couple of episodes ago. Uh, but the same um, the same stuff. Um, that, you know, could be a potential risk on a PC or Mac could also theoretically be a risk on Chrome OS. So in the end, you still got to bring your A game in regards to being safe and savvy. And be careful of like, I've got some people that just love honey, right? Oh, I'm saving so much money. Uh, all these coupons. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ways that we're being tricked into giving away our information and also installing things that, you know, maybe tracking our data or, or you know, bringing profit to somebody. So uh, do you guys block any extensions on your network or address? Uh, that would be an interesting shout out for anybody as far as like, are, do they, do you gatekeep extensions or just let it be a free for all? We don't because there, we don't manage any student devices. So that, that's not been necessary for us. And our statistics suggest that we don't even have kids really logging in on Chromebooks with their MTDA Google accounts. That said, however, we, um, I know that I've, I've been to sessions aimed at IT directors that are managing a large number of student Chromebooks. And as it turns out, it's not even it's blocking. It's that you're just whitelisting, like you allow these 10 of them. And part of that's because there are so many things like kind of sketchy VPN apps that would allow a kid to tunnel through your, your content filter. Um, content filters are another discussion. You probably don't want to get Wes and I on any time in the near future. But like uh, if you're going to have a content filter uh, allowing for a VPN app, many of the free ones which are really sketchy and security risks is not a good idea. So that's that's something that that I think you need to be mindful of is there are a lot of um, approved extensions in the Chrome store that are fairly nefarious in intention. Peggy is saying she does love the honey extension. So <laughs> you save her a lot of money. Um, I, I'm not super versed in it. I just know I see it a lot. Um, my perception of that is is part of our lovely, you know, surveillance capitalism environment in which, you know, just like CVS and Walgreens are going to love for you to join their frequent saver plan so they can monetize your data and who knows how much money they are making by, you know, being able to have your buying record and there's folks, you know, who are paying for that. A lot of us are not worried about that. It's fine. But anyway, it's part of the ecosystem in which we live now. So. Right. Well, and I don't use Honey, but I use FakeSpot. FakeSpot's a different intent, but FakeSpot sniff, uh, adds in analysis to every Amazon uh, uh, item to talk about whether or not the reviews for that item have been uh, uh, potentially uh, faked, right? So you know, FakeSpot. Yeah, FakeSpot. It's a great website. Uh, it also has a Chrome extension, and although the intent is different, Honey is trying to get you... Uh, obviously coupons, but also uses things like affiliate links in order to make money. Um, it's a kind of two-way transaction there, but you know, that these, these things provide utility. Although I think your point's well taken, Wes, that 
it is part of a larger kind of tracking process. So with FakeSpot, you run that extension, and then will it will it just filter out fake um, or bot, re- you know, reviews or or? Oh, it's it it's even, it even deals with something much more sinister than that. It actually looks for reviews it suspects are fake, and also will tell you the number of reviews it estimates that Amazon's deleted because they're fake. So um, it's not particularly great for Amazon, like Amazon branded products. So, for example, if you use any of the Amazon Basics products, and I'll admit, I like the Amazon Basics brand. I've got a couple of work shirts that are Amazon Basics. I utilize uh, their batteries. I've bought some tech stuff from Amazon Basics. I think it's a good idea, and it's it's got a good value proposition, but... Amazon gives away a ton of those products to get reviews for that uh, in, in order to kind of tweak the logarithm. But the yes, absolutely, it, it it helps you track when it thinks reviews are fake. And this it works on Amazon. It also works on I believe Yelp, looking for fake reviews. But you know, like one of the things I love about shopping online and Amazon is that it does give me access to user reviews. But of course, because user reviews uh, can be easily human engineered. <laughs> Then you have to be cautious about that, right? Like, I, I, it's not a guarantee that a review is from someone who's legitimately giving their opinion on something and wasn't otherwise compensated for that. Part of the media literacy landscape that we live in, it's not just about news. It's also about consumer products and, you know, the ways folks are attempting to influence us and affect our not only perceptions, but our behavior as well. Well, guys, we're looking like we're near the top of the hour. I want to go over a couple of quick uh, Chrome OS bits because I, I apparently turned into the Chrome OS advocate guy. Um, I, I, I share these articles kind of in quick succession because I think they're evidence that uh, of, of actually something that counters an article we talked about a couple of weeks ago where, where uh, some writers were talking about how Chrome OS is stagnant. I don't think that's the case because I am on Chrome OS on a daily basis. It is... 90% of my operating system time is spent on Chrome OS in some way, shape, or form. I think it's evolving um, in, in a, a pretty precipitous rate. But uh, two updates from Chrome Unbox, my favorite website for all Chrome knows. First, Chrome OS storage management is about to get a, a big upgrade, and they're going to start to be a little more detailed in the way they show you what you're using your storage on. Right now, Android does a great job. If you go into a relatively recent version of Android, it will tell you what is taking up your storage. Is it downloads? Is it music? Is it video? Is it apps? Right now, Chrome OS doesn't do a very good job of breaking that down into smaller pieces for you so you can make good decisions. And since Chrome OS devices tend to be light on storage, this gives you more tools to deal with that. I think it's a great uh, movement forward. The other thing that's also interesting is that uh, there is a potential... Um, uh, uh, and, and the headline is could Chromebooks could be getting this useful MacBook feature soon. Um, if you are, and I'm going to steal a, a term that you taught me once, uh, Wes, if you are a Jedi with your, uh, a user interface and you use things like gestures, one of the things you probably know on a Mac is there's a lot of, of, uh, cool things you can do with, um, hot corners and virtual desktops, right? And virtual desktops was new to Chrome OS as of version uh, 78, we're in in version 80 right now, but apparently they're going to get hot corners um, on Chrome OS, which allows you to take your mouse, push it to one of the four corners, and then trigger some kind of action with that. And you're able to then utilize push windows to different corners, and I think it's a great uh, adaptation forward. 
my point here is not to report these as, you know, uh, interesting tidbits, although they are. It's that I do think the Chrome operating system is slowly and surely becoming a realistic choice for someone who is seeking to be super productive. And again, um, I have gone all in on, on Chrome OS. I don't carry around. There was a time when I was a Chrome OS user where I'd carry around a backup PC with me in my bag, which, first of all, is just ridiculous on face, but I don't need to do that anymore because I can be 100% productive all the time on my Chromebook, and I do do a variety of interesting bits to be able to do that. So Chrome OS is, uh, I think, a, a very much a productive alternative. And then one other quick note here. This is also from, from uh, Chrome Unboxed. I talked about in the past how I've actually installed Firefox on my Chrome OS devices. I'm not talking about the Android Chrome, or I'm sorry, Android Firefox, which is relatively low function. It's the desktop version because on modern Chrome OS devices, you can install Linux-based apps. Well, there is a set of instructions. They look a little daunting. Um, uh, so if you didn't want to do this, I'd understand. But if you've been tempted by the Brave browser, which is built on top of Chromium, right, the base of Chrome, but has a bunch of security features built in, Chrome Unbox has you covered. You can now install the Linux version of the Brave browser on your Chrome OS device. So it's like having your cake and eating it too. And I think that's a really interesting cutting edge thing to, to realize. Like at one point, Chrome was so much faster than every other browser. Well, Apple's worked a lot on Safari. They've touted that as being a faster browser. But now we've got, you know, Microsoft Edge, both for Mac OS as well as for Windows, that is Chromium-based, and you've ta talked about it being really, really zippy, brave, and then there are privacy affordances to these other browsers like like Firefox and Safari. So I think, yeah, that is that is interesting and uh, worth checking out. Uh, as our resident Apple advocate here, I will point out that on the lovely iPhone, when you go into settings, general, iPhone storage. Um, I am, you know, sporting now the 32 gig iPhone 7 uh, that used to be our daughter's and have have for the first time run into storage issues where I've had to delete apps. And I'm now using 31.1 gigs of 32. Uh, it's very helpful, though, because it tells me, you know, I can delete large attachments, you know, how much I've got on photos, pocket casts, Facebook keynote, Interestingly, I think this was over Christmas, I downloaded this game, Best Fiends, which I think my sister uses, but it's taking up 425 megs, and I've never used it. So helpful to have that kind of reporting data, to, especially when you need to manage storage because you you know have a limited, limited amount. So generally when we bought devices, I have purchased larger devices. That is the dog, that's Scarlet's Bowl. We have, a, we have a dog bowl that has disappeared in our house. Um, the, the dog bowl that belongs to our older dog completely disappeared, and we're sure that our puppy did not eat it. But anyway, I digress because my wife was holding up this bowl going, what is this? Well, well I don't, I don't think we're going to end with more dog bowl discussion. What do we want to end with? Do we want uh, more, any more articles? Or just sure, I'll, I'll just do a quick one because this is kind of related to browsers. Um, uh, recently... The Mozilla Foundation, Mozilla Foundation released a new version of Firefox for Android. And the reason why this is interesting is because 
it is a large overhaul of this particular platform. And the part for me that makes this so interesting is that you can now uh, install extensions on a mobile browser, which is an extraordinary thing. But the idea here is that you can take extensions. The one we've talked about here on the podcast a couple of different times is uBlock Origin. That's the uh, um, ad blocker that I believe both Wes and I use as a standard install on our browsers. You can now install that on... Uh, Firefox on a mobile platform like Android. And that, that's, that's a really extraordinary development. And I can tell you as much as I might be annoyed by intrusive advertisements on a laptop screen, it is so much worse on mobile because of the size of the screen. And in fact, I, one of the things that I, I find news to be hard to read, this is part of the reason why I pay for so many news services, is because I want something that is generally advertising free because I can't read it otherwise. If a third of the screen is always covered by some kind of advertisement, it makes the news pretty hard to get through. And so uh, I, I won't stop paying for news because I think it's important for other reasons, but I will try the new Android version of Firefox because um, I think that that's something to support that you can now put extensions on the browser. Very good. Well, shall we Shall we geek of the week it and get sure. out of this? Get yeah. out of the show? Let me do mine quickly. I've talked about my one of my favorite podca- podcasts is Darknet Diaries. It's an excellent podcast. It gives you some sense about uh, uh, kind of what hacking is all about. They talk about both white hat and black hat hackers. And my favorite episode uh, that I believe I mentioned in the past is they talk about uh, a person who was a security researcher and white hat hacker that, that was supposed to break into a bank in Lebanon and accidentally broke into the bank next door, <laughs> which is not really the, 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 the intent there. But there's a recent set of episodes I think are worth your time. It's episode 58. It's called Oxy Monster. And it talks a little bit about... Um, the notion of, uh, the, the various marketplaces on the hidden internet, right? So things like, things you access like via the Tor browser, uh, sometimes referred to as the dark web, but, uh, it, it refers to an earlier episode. I recommend listening to that one as well in conjunction with this, but this episode talks a little bit about, uh, taking down, um, FBI, uh, uh, attempts to take down these marketplaces to buy things like firearms and drugs. And as it turns out, it's a little complex because, um, you know, you're, you're chasing someone on a, an internet site that is really not traceable. So it really gives you a lot of sense of security, what, uh, uh, the, the internet that's not accessible by most internet users is like. And I ha- highly recommend it. Really well done series, excellent narrative podcast. And to be honest, every episode I've heard, I've probably heard about a third, maybe all of them now, incredibly engaging. Fantastic. I think podcast recommendations as well as book recommendations are one of the best things to be able to get from podcasts. So my Geek of the Week is a website called Pixel Art, uh, but it's pixel spelled P-I-X-I-L-A-R-T dot com. Uh, it's that same spelling, P-I-X-I-L, but underscore art on Twitter. Uh, the reason I know about this is we have a fantastic student project that's been going on for something like seven years. And the last three years, I've been working with our 12th grade creative writing teacher who teaches this class. Students design and uh, write and create their own children's picture books. And they've been using Book Creator the last three years to do those and printing them on demand on Lulu. It's the first year she's required all of them to record their voices. Um, You can go to the website uh, studentauthors.cassidy.org. 
and click on library and go to uh, the 2020 authors. And one of our uh, students who wrote Little Larry and the Jot 400 used pixel art to create all his characters that are inside his book. And so these, you know, look like uh, they're from Minecraft and, and from games. And so it was either yesterday or the day before. It was yesterday, I guess, on Tuesday. Um, our 12th graders who had created these books went down to our kindergarten classes and read their books, you know, to the students. And the kids were like, that looks like Minecraft. And anyway, asked, how did you create that? He said, I made it in pixel art. So it is an app as well as a website and might be something fun to show, share with your students. And I definitely think it's awesome to share ebooks and you can download that ebook as well as others for free that you can read on your device as ePubs that have embedded student audio and listen, hear those 12th graders read their own books to students. So we're hoping to do a celebration event in a couple of weeks that it's going to be kind of a red carpet event. First time to do that, but have this thing in our theater in the evening where our student authors share their books and kids listen. And That's my cool. favorite part will hopefully be the airdrop station where people can bring their iOS device and, you know, airdrop all the free copies of their of the books take them home listen to the student authors read to you that's super cool i love that's gonna be a red carpet event too that's well that's what we're going for yeah i think that and that's that's a shout out to tim tyson way back in 2005 when i met him uh when he's at um cob in cobb county georgia at mabry middle school they did that with digital storytelling and just kind of built it up year over year as a bigger and bigger deal you know they celebrated the kids who were making these digital video digital stories and um and making movies and things like that um, to quickly give a, a voice to some chat, uh, Peggy George was asking about ad blockers and, you know, how frustrating it is sometimes when sites are, are saying you got to turn off your ad blocker. I had taught Rachel, our daughter, who's continuing to do debate. And Jason, you'll be excited that she's thinking about debate camp this summer and continuing awesome. on with debate, uh, how to use what's called Google cached links. And sometimes when a website, you know, is... It, it, Sometimes when it's moved or it's not available, but also it can be if they have a paywall, you can click a little arrow up in the you know, upper right corner and then go to a cached link, which is a saved link. And sometimes that allows you to actually bypass a paywall. And yes, Peggy, you can use that and keep your ad blocker turned on. It doesn't always work. But Marta, who's down in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, is saying thanks for the pixel art. She's going to check that out. So. Awesome. Thank you for saying hi, Marta. I've seen that up to five live viewers today and good to know that you're able to join us tonight. So you can find me on Twitter's at WFryer, speedofcreativity.org. I've been posting a little more recently and uh, continuing to post my media literacy and digital literacy curriculum for students at mdtech.cassidy.org. Jason, where are we going to be able to find these amazing, this, this is going to be uh, seven different I don't know anybody who's ever done seven sessions at a conference. So I, I think well, you're doing a Guinness Book of Oh, you're, you've oh, this is not my record. Yeah. Oh, I, man. It was, it was foolish, but I think it was NCC 2013 or 14. I did 13 sessions in four days. What? Yeah, it was right, not. Let's just put a shout out. Has anybody exceeded that? This, this tells you something about the, the capacity of this, right. this man to, generate new content at a, at a tech conference. Well, wow. I have to say, I don't think I was even getting paid that year either. So, so like it was just, 
me going to town. So, but you know, it, 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 the karma is something, something, something. So, uh, well, first of all, follow me on Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. I will t- tweet out uh, links to stuff as I'm presenting. And by the way, not only am I a part of NCCE in two weeks, next, or I'm sorry, uh, I guess it will be in three weeks. Uh, two weeks from now, I'll be at the Digital Learning Annual Conference in Austin, Texas, the second annual Digital Learning Online con- or Annual Conference in Austin. And I am presenting on a new topic that is a fresh presentation I've been working on. I'm going to do a smaller version of DLAC and then a larger version of NCCE. It's called Reading Still Matters, uh, Literacy in Digital Learning, and talking about not digital literacy, but, but reading literacy. And if we are paying enough attention to, to student reading levels and the reading levels of materials, a great presentation I'm looking forward to. More about NCCE, though, www.ncce.com. Org. It's not too late to sign up for this awesome conference. We have a great number of wonderful things this year, including a focus on esports. There's going to be a couple of demonstrations regarding esports. We have wonderful keynote speakers, excellent sessions. You can see me seven times if that's really what your thing is, um, or meet with a number of, of excellent vendors uh, at that conference. Again, ncc.org. But this podcast isn't it's the NCCE, DLAC, any of the things. This is the EdTech Situation where we are a once-a-week podcast that meets most Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, or 3 or 4 UTC if you want to be doing this live in the middle of the night in Europe. But if you can't catch us live, although please do, we love having a live audience, although I do miss, uh, I don't see any of the chat anymore um, on my end. So that's really? Participating in chat as I don't I don't see. Oh, it. you gotta let me know. I will have to maybe I have to knight you again as co co manager of the channel. Yeah, I'm also not signed into anything either. I think oh, see, so yeah, you gotta sign in to do that. Yeah. So, okay. but we love anyway. our chat room. We love yes. live audience. But if you can't join us, then you can find us on YouTube. You can find us wherever finer podcasts are aggregated, including all the major apps. You can also take a look for us on Stitcher, where we also appear. We're in the iTunes uh, uh, podcast library. Um, if, if, if you can't uh, find us there, don't want to 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 hear us in that format, you can always go see the links, uh, edtechsr.com, full show notes every week, and also the links to every article we also don't get to. Um, in the meantime, we hope you stay safe, stay stabbing. We hope to see you next time on the Antic Situation Room. Good night.